0: This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we we sing hallelujah this morning. We praise and lift up the name of your pray. Jesus Christ and we recognize that we lift him up in praise because he was laid down in a grave and we recognize that he's clothed in all glory and all majesty because he chose to hang naked on a cross and be clothed for the message of the gospel, the message that you love sinners, Lord, that you have come to deal with sin and to deliver the sinner and to transfer them from darkness to light, God. We sing hallelujah. And so, God, we thank you that we've been able to gather in your name and to praise the name of your Son, by your Spirit, Lord, I pray now that you would open your Word and speak to us. We need to hear from you, Lord, so speak to us through your Word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. It's the sound of uh, waves roaring as they gently wash up on the shore of a beach. It's the sound, the sizzling syncopation of a burger when it's placed on a red hot grill. It's the laughter of children who are celebrating two months of emancipation from education. It's, the, it's that hypnotic rhythm of your neighbor's pulsating sprinkler. These are the sounds of summer. You hear those sounds and you associate that with the season that we are enjoying right now. It's the sound of a summer. Uh, Today we're going to be asking ourselves the question, what is the sound of Christianity? What do Christians sound like? And the most obvious answer, the thing that that we uh, can understand is the thing that we have just been spending our time doing. One of the major sounds of Christianity is the sound of singing. And today in Psalm 33, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up Psalm 33. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle with copies of God's Word so that everyone has a chance to follow along this morning. But as we turn to Psalm 33, we're going to be looking at this this sound of Christianity. We're going to be looking at this psalm to to investigate uh, why do we sing and how are we supposed to sing? What is the sound supposed to sound like? And does it sound the same for us now as it did when Psalm 33 was written? Does it sound the same in Brampton as it would in Bangladesh? Does it it sound the same? And what does the Bible tell us about how Christians should sing? So if you take a look at Psalm 33 and verse 1, it begins by saying, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now most psalms begin with a little title, some musical instructions or some information about the author or the context in which this, the psalm was written. But if you notice, Psalm 33 has, has no title, no introduction and verse 1 actually is almost the same as verse 11 of Psalm 32. Uh, Psalm 32 talked about the the blessedness of being forgiven, about how life is not about being a good person, it's about being a forgiven person. And Psalm 33 continues right along with that theme. In fact, some scholars believe that Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 were in fact the same psalm. Because the, the same theme follows throughout. Psalm 32 talks about what it means to be forgiven, and then Psalm 33 is all about the response Now that our hearts have been forgiven, what now is going to come out of our mouths? And Psalm 32 ends with saying, shout for joy. And Psalm 33 verse one says that we are to shout for joy. And so the the beginning of the Psalm answers this question. It answers the idea of how we are to worship. It says that we're we're to shout for joy. And so the psalm begins with, with looking at how Christians are supposed to worship. What is this sound supposed to sound like? Take a look at verse two. It says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Now we don't have any lyres or harps on the platform here this morning. And the important thing is not the actual instrument, but the, the encouragement of believers to use instrumentation in their worship. Then it says in verse three, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Verse 3 is going to tell us three things about how we are supposed to worship. Here's the first one. We're supposed to worship with songs that are new. With songs that are new. It says sing to the Lord a new song. Now listen, if Christians weren't supposed to sing old songs, then we wouldn't have the book of Psalms. Because the book of Psalms, that's about as old as you can possibly get. And these are songs that we have preserved. So Christians by no means want to get rid of old songs because of the Psalms themselves, because of that beautiful song, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me, that we sang this morning. Those are old songs. And we're not saying we need to get rid of old songs, but the old songs actually tell us to sing new songs. Because God is always doing something new. And God has demonstrated his faithfulness to our lives in the last seven days that, that we weren't able to sing about seven days earlier. And so we sing new songs because God is always doing new things. He is never changing, but we are always learning more and more about Him. Some of us are just so stuck in this idea of, you know, after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, all good songs stopped being written. And, and some of us are so stuck in the past that it needs to be played on an organ and unless it's written by, by Isaac Watts or, or, by, or by one of the Wesley brothers, I don't wanna sing it. And listen, we love those songs, we cherish those songs, but we are told to sing to the Lord a new song. But furthermore, In the book of Revelation, we're actually given a sneak peek into the set list of the kinds of songs that we're going to sing. And in Revelation 5, 9, and in Revelation 14, 3, we're told they sang a new song to the Lord. So in heaven, we are going to be singing new songs. We are commanded to sing to the Lord a new song. But then it says to play skillfully on the strings. So we need to sing with songs that are new. Secondly, we need to sing with musicians that are skillful, musicians that are skillful. And I'm so thankful for Jameson Evenden and for the team of musicians that are so skillful and gifted. Listen, they have a heart for the Lord, but they have hands that can play and voices that can sing and the way that they lead us. And I don't know about you, but I've been in some worship settings where the self-esteem of the person up here has been a higher priority than the worship of the people out there. And the person simply does not have the skill or the ability to play in such a way that would lead other people in worship. And that can be a massive distraction. And so it is, it is called upon among believers to have skillful musicians to play as God's people sing to accompany the singing so songs that are new musicians that are skillful and also make note of this shouts that are loud shouts that are loud it said it says and with loud shouts at the end of verse 3 Psalm 33 verse 1 begins with shout to the Lord. Now, there is always an appropriate time and place for raising the volume of our voices or lifting it up in a show. But nonetheless, the gospel is just too awesome to be communicated in monotone. That it, there is something that, that is just so great about who God is and what He has done that is just not appropriate for us just to kind of murmur through the music. It's, it's, it's so powerful that it causes us to want to sing with everything in our being. And so whether you're new to Harvest or been coming for a long time, I've said this many times, sing loud. And if you can't sing, that will just make the good singers sing louder to drown you out. And we are all called upon to sing songs that are new, to be led by musicians that are skillful, and to shout our praise to the Lord. And so that is how, but listen, it's not just about the mechanics. We, we have not truly worshiped if we simply sing a new song, have some skilled musicians, and sing as loud as we can. That is, that is simply the mode, or that is simply the, the, the outworking of worship, but why do we worship? That's what the rest of the song zeroes in on. So we've looked at how we worship, now let's talk about why. We worship, and that begins at verse four. Take a look at it with me. It says, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Why do we worship? Why do we worship the Lord? What, what is it about him that causes us to want to shout? What, what, what is so beautiful about him that it's only fitting that skillful musicians playing beautiful music would cause us to worship him. What is it about it that every single week we have a desire to want to sing something new because we've learned something new about how great he is. Well, here's the first thing about why we worship is because God is good. God is good. Notice how in verse 4 how God's word and God's works are interconnected. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. You see, we as human beings, we're pretty good at talking the talk, even sometimes even our words are not upright. But we always tend to say, oh, this is how it ought to be done, or this is how I always do things. But then when you actually take what some people say and then take a look at how those people live their lives, is the what we say doesn't always line up with what we do. But that is not true with God. His Word and His work are always in perfect harmony. The great Presbyterian preacher and com- commentator James Montgomery Boy summed up this passage so beautifully. He said, God's words and God's works always go to de- together. How different it is with us. We say one thing and do another so that we are inconsistent at best and hypocritical or blatantly dishonest at worst. God is utterly consistent, always upright and consistently good. In His words and His works, God is good to us. That is why we praise Him. It goes on in verse five, it says, He loves righteousness and justice. I got to admit that sometimes when I have to do the right thing, I don't always love that I'm doing it when I have to change a wet bed at 1.30 in the morning like I had to last night. I, I did what was right. I did what a parent should do. I looked after my son. I made sure he had new pajamas on. I changed his bedding. But I did not love doing that. But that is me. I sometimes do what's righteous. I don't always love what's righteous. But every time God does something good, He loves doing it. Every time God does something right, He loves doing it because He loves righteousness and justice. And then the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, the whole earth is full of God doing what is right and what is good, saying and doing what is right and what is good, and loving it while he does it. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He said, let me tell you about my father. He said, my father causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. My my father causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. And so because the sun came up today, because we're hoping for some rain soon, I hope, when that rain finally comes, it will fall on us because God is good and He loves to do what is good. And that is why we worship Him. Because God is good. Secondly, make note of this, because God is creator. God is creator. Why do we worship? We worship because God is creator. Verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We worship the Lord because he created everything. He created this world. He created all of us. And we're we're told in verse six and verse nine, the means by which God created the earth. All he did was speak. Verse six says, by the word of the Lord. Verse nine says, for he spoke and it came to be. That is the power of God. For the last... um, 50 or 60 years, the scientific world has taken a dramatic shift in its approach to the origin of the universe and this concept, this idea, which is relatively new to science, this idea of a Big Bang. This idea, this evidence that the world, the universe, is in fact expanding, which points to the fact that it once started as something very small and very simple. And and there is this idea of a big bang. A big bang that that brought about the existence of the universe. And that's something that is new to the scientific world over the last 60 or 70 years. Years That's new to the scientific world, but it's not new. It's not new at all to the Christian faith. We don't call it a big bang. We call it a big voice. There was a big voice that said, let there be light. He spoke, and in six days, he just spoke. Let there be light. Let there be a sun and a moon. Let there be an earth. Let's, let there be land. Let it be filled with life. And then he fashioned us. He created each and every one of us. This is why we worship him. That's why it says in verse 8, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him to worship him because he spoke and it came to be. Now some of you are here, to, are here today and you're thinking, that's just too incredible for me to believe. That's not what I learned in my high school biology class or my university program in science. And I understand how difficult it may be for someone who's only heard it one way to even entertain the idea that everything around us is here simply because God put it here. I was uh, reading a a book by Norman Geisler this week and he he got me thinking about this illustration. Just picture a a Christian and an atheist walking through the woods over on El Dorado Park. And as they're walking through the woods along the trail, they spot off in deep into the forest. They see something and so they walk over to it and on a bed of pine needles there is a very small water balloon. One that you can just fit in your hand and the, the moisture, the condensation is on the, the rubber of the balloon and it's, just, it's like it's been placed there. And. The statement that comes out of the Christian's mouth and the atheist's mouth as they look at this water balloon sitting there, they both say simultaneously, I wonder who put that there? And then the Christian turns to the atheist and said, if that water balloon were the size of a basketball, would you wonder who put that there? And the atheist says, yeah, yeah, of course I would. If, if that water balloon were as tall as that tree over there, would you think the same thing? Would you wonder who put that there? Yeah, I'd, really, I'd actually be more interested in who put it there. If the water balloon were the size of all of El Dorado Park, would you wonder who put that water balloon there? The atheist is starting to get annoyed. Of course I would. I mean, the bigger it would get, the more interested I would want to know, who put that here? What if the water balloon were the size of the whole world? Would you wonder who put it there? The atheist, by this point, is just exasperated. Why do you keep asking me about this ever-increasing giant water balloon? And the Christian just simply says, because we're standing on it right now. A water balloon placed in the middle of a forest, there's got to be a cause for it being there. There had to have been an intelligent being who filled it up with water, stretched it out, tied it up, and placed it there carefully. That couldn't have happened randomly. When you see design, when you see intention, you wonder, you ask the question, who put it there? And all around the world, all around this universe, we see design, we see care, we see intelligence. And so if you're going to wonder why did someone put a water balloon there, you also have to wonder why is the universe here? Why is the world there? God is our creator. And listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe His Word, I just want to challenge you to take advantage of the opportunities that summer gives you. Go to a lake and, and, and look at water and put your feet into it and just marvel at hydrogen and oxygen coming together to make this, this Substance, this 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 thing, this invisible force that can that can totally destroy a city if it runs out of control, that can gently clean your infant's hair. And to look up at the stars at night and see the beauty and the expanse and the complexity. To look at the bones and the ligaments in your own hand and see the design. And to wonder, who put this there? Who put that there? And, and to take full, and just maybe if you don't believe in God, just even pray this simple prayer. God, are you out there? God, did you do this? And if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I, listen, times... The time hasn't passed for you to explore and to stand in awe and to wonder and to do all of those same things and to worship while you do them because God is our creator. Don't waste your summer. Use it as a means of worshiping the Lord for all that he has done in creating us. But here's the amazing thing. God didn't just create the world and then just sort of leave us off on our own. God is actually paying attention. He is actually involved in our everyday lives. And so make note of this. God is good, God is creator, and God is sovereign. That's a word that describes, that's a word that means he's, he's the king. He's our creator, he's our king. He's our maker, he's our monarch. God is our a creator. Take a look at... at at verse 10. It says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And then it goes on to say in verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. When this Psalm would have been written, some of the major nations in the, in the area vicinity surrounding Israel would have been a Philistia where the Philistines were or Moab where the Moabites or the, the Ammonites down in, in Ammon and at different times these nations seem to have a great plan. They seem like no one could ever stop them but God's word tells us in verse 9, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. When this Psalm was written, The world really hadn't seen a a superpower like was about to come on the scene a few centuries later. A superpower like the Assyrians who were going to just move westward and just destroy and pillage nation after nation, city after city. The the world had yet to see a, a mighty powerful nation like the Babylonians who were going to come and take God's people out into exile, yet to see a world power like the Medo-Persians, like the Greeks, like the Romans. But even, even centuries after, Psalm 33 was written, that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations. These plans of these nations seems like no one could ever defeat them. No one could ever destroy them. We see that it's not a king or a president or a ruler who actually determines the fate of a nation. It is the Lord who does that. So he talks about the nation's plan in verse 10, and then verse 11 talks about his plan. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. What is God's plan? They only had a very small picture of God's plan when Psalm 33 was written. You see, the plan began in the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, it was God's plan. The plan of God's heart was to bring God's people who had run away from him to bring them back to him. The plan started with one man named Abraham. And out of Abraham, they grew into a great nation, but that nation found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And the council of Egypt, the plans of Egypt seemed like they could never be defeated, but God brought the council of the Egyptians to nothing. And used a simple slave people, used a, a, a prince turned shepherd to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, all part. This is the plan of God's heart. And he placed them into a great nation. And he put a king in ahead of them, David, who probably wrote Psalm 33. And that was God's plan, but there was, more, there was disobedience and rebellion all along. And Those great empires came and they swept away the north part of the country. They swept away the south part of the country into exile. It seemed like God's plan was over, but as it says in verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And after 70 years of exile, the people found themselves coming back to the promised land, all to set the stage for God's ultimate plan to send his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for us. And what was the council of the nations? What were the plans of the peoples? Well, the leaders of the people of Israel teamed up with the leaders of the people of Rome and they crucified Jesus, thinking, well, we're done with him once and for all. But the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. And three days later, Jesus rose again so that we could be saved and forgiven for our sins. That is the plan of God's heart. Has your heart responded to the plan of God's heart today? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? In verse 12, it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And God had a plan for the people of Israel, still has a plan for the people of Israel. But now he's created this new nation, this this holy nation that is made up of people from all kinds of nations. And we are the ones trusting in the Lord. We certainly do not live in a country that is trusting in the Lord, but we ourselves are a country within the country. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we ourselves are trusting in the Lord Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. That is us. That is us that God has chosen for his heritage. He's sovereign. He has this ultimate plan. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. Notice the repetition of all, all, all. God doesn't miss a thing. He is paying attention to every detail of our lives. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and it is by its great, and and by its great might, it cannot rescue The Christian can go into any situation, even if the numbers are against us. If we have God on our side, we always have an an overwhelming majority. If we have God on our side, we always have more in our arsenal than anything anyone in the world could ever do to us. Because greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. And so even when things are stacked up against us, we can confidently move forward. We can even stand alone if we need to because God is with us. And then I love verse 18. It says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. Speaks generally about the nations and all the peoples that God sees everything, but His eye, His careful attention is on His people. He's not simply observing what you're doing. He is actively involved in helping and rescuing. The verse continues, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Here's the fourth reason why we worship the Lord, because God is loving. Because God is loving. His eye is on us. And verse, uh, verse uh, 18 says, we are those who hope in his steadfast love. God is loving. We believe that God is with us and for us. This God who is good. This God who created us. This God who is sovereign and is in control. He loves us. And he is for us and with us. This is why we worship and I want to invite the worship team to, uh, to come forward now. We're going to respond with worship. But I, wanna, I want you to take a look at verse 22. And I want you to, to pay attention to how the grammar changes at the end of the psalm. You see, the whole psalm has been talking about God or people when they trust in God. The Lord does this. The Lord does that. But Psalm 22, it becomes personal. And maybe for you here today, it's never been personal. And maybe this is your opportunity really for the first time to personally declare your worship, your love for a God who loves you, who has a plan for you and who created you. Look at verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. This loving God, maybe it's your opportunity today to respond with love towards the God who created you, who is sovereign over all things, and who loves you. Maybe this is your opportunity to express your love to Him, even as we hope in you. And those of us who have already responded in love to the God who loves us, this is why we worship. God is good. He is creator. He is sovereign over everything happening in our lives. And He loves us. And that is why we worship. But let's return, turn your hand out over, let's review how we are to worship. So in light of the fact that God is good and that He's creator and that He's sovereign and that He loves us, we are supposed to worship with songs that are new. And so we're gonna get on our feet in a minute and we're gonna sing a new song, that thousands, that thousand-tongue song from Vertical Church Band. We are going to sing a, a new song. We are going to declare our praise in a new way. We are gonna be led by musicians that are skillful, and we are gonna lift our voices with shouts that are loud. So let's get on our feet, and let's start to clap our hands together. This is why we worship, and therefore this is how we worship. And so let's start clapping together. Let's lift our voices in praise. Let's do that now. You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.